Welcome to the T's and C's. Tisa and Chantel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions. Welcome to a, another episode of our Reflection COVID-19 special. We've been doing this now for nearly three months. We started just after the lockdown and we've been trying to cover the sort of sociological issues that we've been thinking about. During this time, we've been able to cover more emerging political moments that have been happening as well during the global pandemic. We are so excited that our friend and Surviving Society alumni Norman Riley is here with us today to talk about the marches for the neo-Nazi far-right fascist marches that happened in London a week after the Black Lives Matter marches. And to give context to this, Norman You'll see in our episode notes, but Norman is a part of True Faith podcast, which is the unofficial fanzine of Newcastle United. Yeah, just yeah, we're a fanzine. Yeah, yeah, a fanzine. So independent, independent of the club. Independent of the club. And is also a, I'm going to call you this, even though you'll say, you'll be modest <laughs> and say it's not true, but a specialist on football hooliganism <laughs> and European football in general. He's, he's an expert. He's an expert. 1980 to now. And I think that w- one of the reasons why we were so motivated to get Norman on is because of how much misrecognition and misunderstandings we were seeing about who people were positioning as football hooligans or who people were assuming were part of these groups of predominantly white men doing Nazi salutes, doing guerrilla chanting. We saw quite a quite a lot of misrecognition about who these people actually are. So we wanted to bring Norman on to just sort of do a little recap of how we can better understand who these people are. And through understanding who these people are, it actually helps us to I think so. Just um, to challenge them. Like, to find better ways to challenge them. Rehabilitate them. But no, just to understand. Rehabilitate them. them. Like I think, I think the word understand. I think, I think what's interesting is how people how they see themselves now. Key word in this whole debate about these these guys, these football guys, is the word lad. It doesn't belong to a class. It's a type of person, right? It's a character that people play. White collar boxing. These guys see themselves as lads, don't they? And, and they're clearly, some of them are middle class. Some of them are upper middle class and well-paid barristers, solicitors. So it's the word lad that we're, that's the key word here. And that's who Tommy Robertson appealed to in his call for these guys to go down, the idea of a lad. So what is a lad? That's a really good point because, you know, football itself, football support fandom, it is, regardless of any of the changes that may have had in terms of the demographic attendance matches over the last 20 years, for example, in the Premier League now, it's almost 25% of, of matchday attendees are female, whereas 20 years ago, that would have been a lot less. 30 years ago, would have been minimal. But football fandom especially, it's still a site, in my opinion, of hegemonic masculinity. It's an arena in which hyper-masculine norms play out, uh, hyper-masculine norms are reinforced. The behaviour that, that you see on a, on a match day and the build-up to matches, poorest matches, it, it very much ties in with, as I say, this this concept of hegemonic masculinity and the DFLA, for example, that march, we'll call it a march, you can't call it a protest because, you know, I don't think many people here knew what they were actually protesting. The kind of behaviour there, you know, excessive drinking and doing classier drugs, that is a very laddish behaviour and, and it's kind of typical of kind of average Saturday afternoon if you go to a, if you go to a pub pre-match. The characterisation of the lad and linking that to football hooliganism just thinking about like all the literature that we have on this that we can turn to so even thinking about like willis thinking about like les back thinking about john solomon thinking about brett st louis like all these people that have written about 
how these groups of predominantly white men come together and their relationship with football and fandom. A combination of films, thinking about like Green Street, Football Factory, Sexy Beast, like and TV, like Shameless, um, This Is England, like all these different sort of ways that football hooliganisms and quote-unquote lads has been portrayed and characterised. We're not the first to say that it's embedded within how these groups of men are understood to be. Where I sit on it right now is I was obviously seeing a lot of people that I respect a lot and people that I know have experienced interpersonal, illiberal racism. So to quote Aurelia Monden and Aaron Winter there, so being verbally and physically abused by some people that fit into this characterization of these white men that are quote unquote lads misconstruing and misunderstanding who the majority of these people are it's not that I don't understand that but it's like I want us to imagine harder and think more critically about who they actually are because both the literature evidence and actually what's come out after their march shows us that many of these men are men with power and when I talk about power I mean that materially and socially so these are not skint stellar drinking council estate dwelling men like the majority of them own their cars live in the suburbs and hold a lot of deeply racist views I'm not trying to defend them at all but I feel like that misunderstanding or time misrecognition of who these men are majority men although there's always women organizing within these far-right movements history tells us it's it's just a it's just it's it's a tentative subject but it's one that I really want many of us to push ourselves harder on so we can actually challenge who they are and what they're doing hard for people to do that because like you just touched on the modes of cultural production look at something like Peaky Blinders right Working class people engage in madness acts of violence and, and people at the top are all very elite. So Otto Rosen is coming to the, the latest series and he's all very smart and very suave and he's manipulating people. So culture production tells people that people that commit acts of violence are normally working class and they're usually a bit dumb. It's a very available, ready to reach trope that sits there. The media could deploy it as and when. And people understand that straight away. Tifo just made some really important points of linking what I said to like culture and how that plays out and thinking about like, peaky blinders and stuff. And mm-hmm. I think that I don't mm-hmm. want people, particularly black people and people of colour who have experienced racism from poorer white people to assume that I'm trying to caveat and or excuse their experiences. I'm not at all. And I'm not excusing the fact mm-hmm. that there will be working class people who happen to be white men that take part in this type of activity, this sort of hateful activity. However, if we just characterise them as these people, we miss a substantial demographic of this group, which are middle class white men. And it's a real difficult one. And I know you've got, you wanted to talk a bit about some of the examples we were talking about earlier, Norman, about some of the men that were at the march a few weeks ago, or that have been actively responding as foot soldiers to Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it, it, it's so easy to swallow the the narrative of, of football fans being a homogenous mass of, you know, um, so-called working class, uneducated people who like a fight. Um, you know, that, that that's not the case at all. You you know, you, you look at the people involved in this CFLA march, for example, you look at the people who are arrested and, and people who are there, you've got a, a former police officer with the British Transport Police in London being carried on the shoulders of a black man, Patrick Hutchison, uh, let's say a, 
a situation in which he, you know, he found himself in a little bit of a little bit of trouble. Um, this is a police officer. That's that that is as mainstream as he can possibly get, and certainly not somebody who, you know, is I don't know living yeah. on a living on a council estate. You know, claiming welfare. I hear that phrase, claiming welfare. But you, you know what you know what I'm saying. Um, you've got um a week prior to the DFLE event in a village called I'm saying village. It might be a town. Um. Hoddison, uh, which is in the the borough of Broxbourne in Hertfordshire, a, tor- a conservative seat, a, a very conservative seat, average house price four hundred twenty five grand. There's this very small BLM protest there, and this then meant over a hundred football fans. Let's call, let's see. I, I hate using the word fans as well. That, again, that's that's incorrect. Um, a hundred men who apparently support Tottenham Hotspur turning up and, and chanting racist abuse. This is in this is in your kind of small Hertfordshire town. This isn't. This isn't a council state in Hartlepool. The lad who flew the All Lives Matter banner over the Burnley Stadium, he's a, he's a welder. Now, a welder, I suppose, traditionally, you would call that a, tradi- a traditional working class job. Now, you know, the average wage of welder gets is 28 grand. He's living in Burnley. That's not somebody who I'm imagining is on the poverty line. And if, and if you can afford to hire a plane and fly a banner over a football stadium, you're not this uneducated, broke person struggling, you know, disenfranchised, living, living as I say, in a council estate somewhere. That, that's, it's completely untrue. Um, there were, you know, there were, there were more examples of it. A um, person who was uh, arrested for a union next to the Keith Palmer plaque on the London Bridge. He, he lives in Stansted in Essex. Stansted in Essex is by no means a sink estate in, you know, the north of England, as I say, on the south of England. It, it, it's just not so... To kind of conceptualise this whole group uh, as being, you know, air quotes, yeah, uneducated and from the kind of lower working class slash underclass um, socioeconomic groups is... Well, it's it's just laziness. No. The, 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 the co- coach roads of people, right, from... so the coach, I'm saying coach roads, but I'm not I'm not saying each city send coach roads, but, in, in, you know, in total, this is coach roads. Newcastle, Sunderland, Leeds, other places up north, places down south... Uh, Plymouth, for example. Now, if people are getting on coaches on a Saturday afternoon, spending a whole day travelling to to London and back, you know, 200, 300 miles, boozing all day and buying expensive narcotics, you know, if you're spending this kind of money in this kind of time when you're supposed to be, you know, possibly on welfare, skinned, struggling to put food on your table and paying rent, if you're engaging in this kind of behaviour and going to the FLA protest, then you know, you need to take a look at where you spend your money. It's just, it's just not true. It's so easy, as I say, to conceptualise these people as being like an uneducated underclass who've got no money. I agree 100% saying normal. Like to me, it always seems so obvious, right? How football even sells it. So it's a nation's game. So therefore, the nation includes everyone. So it can never be one group. What I was going to say, I was going to mm-hmm. add on to that is that this group of people, like I said, the word lad is, I think for me, is a very, is a very kind of like a telling one. So these lads have come down to defend what? They've come down to defend a certain notion of nation, a certain notion of whiteness in that nation. So that in, in their sense, maybe Englishness, on a broader sense, Britishness, and so to the link with Northern Ireland. But what's interesting is these guys, like you said, they, they come from a, a kind of multitude of class backgrounds. It fits that narrative of if we portray them as these people as the left behind, it kind of fits the idea of this neoliberal story. Like neoliberalism is one of ongoing success, monetary success. But we have to sell this narrative of the left behind. And now we've got that group right in front of us. So because neoliberalism suggests that everyone's getting better, isn't it? It's a story of triumph over adversity. And these pockets of poor people don't fit that narrative. So this is why slavery doesn't fit that narrative of the neoliberal dream. It's always stories of success. So Britain never talks about its failures or its successes. 
America the same. You only hear about successes. So if you said to someone, an American, what about the war of 1812? What? No one understands about the war of 1812. If you say to this person for the United Kingdom, tell you about the Mau Mau in Kenya. No one knows. We speak about our successes because that's the nature of neoliberalism. And if we want to justify anything, we look for that group. It, it's interesting that you mentioned that, and especially, obviously, you know, you mentioned the Mau Mau and winners versus losers. And look, you look at what DFLA March was supposedly protecting, right? So for a start, the whole narrative around statues, it, it reignited the DFLA. The DFLA were, they've been quiet for quite a considerable amount of time. This argument on protecting Britain's cultural heritage, i.e. these statues, it kind of re- it reignited them. Now, the success-failure story, Winston Churchill, for example, right? Narrative and myth that's built around him. The only thing that these people protecting Winston Churchill statues have, have seen is, is the success. Winston Churchill defeated Nazism. Winston Churchill is great Brit. I am representing him. He's like, he's a real British hero. He's part of my heritage. I need to protect him. I need to protect him. And you mentioned the Mau Mau there. How many, how many people would have been taught about Churchill uh, towards, uh, towards the Mau Mau during the, 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 the war in Kenya? How many people would have been taught, how many people would have been taught about what he, what he said about Indians? How many people would have you know, um, known about his behaviour in South Africa, Iran, Iraq? N- nobody. So again, it, it ties into success failure. And if the Churchill statue is vandalised, that's their success being vandalised, that's their heritage being vandalised. So they're, they're thinking that they're actually doing something that is is, is worthwhile. And, and 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 I think I've been reading the um, Aurelian Mondon, our winner book that you mentioned, the liberal racism aspect of it. And, and to, a, to a certain extent, the, the national psyche of patriotism, it allows people who aren't these kind of out-and-out violent racists, like a lot of the DFLA are, to support something that, you know, they might engage in that behaviour, but the kind of, Mm-hmm. On some level, supported. So there's a, there's a little the DFLA are protecting these are protecting Winston Churchill and English heritage. So they're kind of garnering sympathy from people who, who normally wouldn't engage with them at all. I totally agree with both of your points. How frustrating it is are people misunderstanding what these groups coalesce around or what unites them, and the mistake within the multitude of the political landscape is assuming that what unites these people is being working class and poor and that isn't what unites them and when we miss that fact we just misunderstand who they are and also it allows liberals to separate themselves from them these are your fucking peers this is your peer group this isn't someone separate from you this is a part of you these people that are doing nazi salutes also like just thinking as well about the media class and the and journalists which are predominantly white anyway and from these middle class backgrounds taking a long time to report on what was happening over that weekend just saying that anecdotally and then when they are reporting on it they're reporting on it in terms of them being something separate from their world and it's just not true i would say i was literally talking to one of my my good friends I was talking about racism that I experienced at university this is just bringing it back to interpersonal some of the worst things that had happened to me was perpetuated by middle to upper class boarding school white men that will be part of these groups of football hooligans I think it's to do with lived experience that I've just given an example of but why people can't understand that like a lot of these men actually have power and me saying that isn't me defending people that haven't got power that engage in this stuff you see like the lad thing it's a subculture because I would say I was a bit of a lad I belong to a tribe so you know my tribe I've got straight jeans I've got Reebok workout on I've got a white pair Reebok workout on I've got the right jacket on it's a stone lining jacket it's not a cheap jacket it's a proper jacket so you see the difference and I see my tribe you can walk around you can see people so when I moved from London to Scotland I met the casuals 
and there's a link there and it's a subculture and because it's a subculture people don't really understand they don't see it as a subculture but it definitely is because we have insiders and outsiders so certain i'll go to certain places certain clubs certain nightclubs i like certain kind of music and when you go to like a, even a garage rave you'll see it there in a festival lads are in the corner wearing stone lining i see another group of people and then we're in a different, a different type of clothing. It might be a bit of Versace and Moschino. Yeah. They're not lads in my definition. This is how we separate things. So when you go to football matches, you see your people told by a dress code. It's, it's mad. But because it's a subculture, people don't see it the same way. Exactly. And they constantly perpetuate the myth that what unites the lads of this subculture is material deprivation. It's not. It's the opposite. It's about how much money I could spend, right? I need to let people know what I'm doing what I'm wearing, and like I said, and people will go out of the way. So one of my friends, he collects stone lining jackets, and these jackets, again, they're not cheap. So he's collecting these things, but he would define himself as a lad. It's about a self-identification thing based on what group you want to belong to. Sorry, and, and the hyper-masculine aspect of it yeah. as well. It's about how much you can, how much you can drink, how much, how much cocaine you can put up in your yeah, yeah. how long, how long you can last, how much you can fight. This is the whole football hooligan mentality. The DFLA, for example. The you know there isn't a, there isn't a real sort of leadership there. There there are you know there are individuals who kind of lead from the front and are, are the main spokespeople for them. But what they have done kind of cleverly is you've got you've got people there who've got abhorrent a, a right wing extreme right views, but they've also played on the fact that there are groups of people, football fans, who like to meet up and fight. It's not like a, a political movement with one one specific aim in mind. There's a load of disparate groups who are yes overwhelmingly and we're just 100% racist but it's it's not like as you see it's just this one movement that meets up that is totally disenfranchised cut off and, and but, is protesting it's not that and it never has all. been the, and, and any, any media outlet seeing that is never like this has a history right so political parties will use people that like fighting who attend football to do political things up until the modern day like the ultras and Lazio and the Chelsea headhunters it's well known that these groups have links with paramilitary groups and definitely links with far right or extreme right parties. This is an area that's been well researched, well known for a long time. So it's just political actors going into a crowd of people who like fighting and agitating them and then directing them. And this has always been the case. Uh, absolutely. Have, have you have either of you heard of the concept of the holy fan as opposed to hooligan? It was uh, conceptualised by these academics, Rockwood and Pearson. Basically, you've got your hooligans who are the ones who are going out and engaging in the fighting, the verbal abuse, the hatred, etc. And you've got your hula fans who, who distance themselves from these, these particular groups in terms of the actions that commit. But at the same time, they're part of the, the kind of wider tribe. So what they do is they, they encourage the behaviour, they, they condone the behaviour, they don't actually act on it. They're not standing up and saying this is completely wrong. So it kind of got me thinking when you have, you know, you have, let's say, the DFL here, right? They, this, this march, it was, it was sold on the premise of, I mean, I've got the flyer in front of me now. Obviously, people can't see it, but it's, it is literally protect our memorials. Have some respect. White legs matter too. No white guilt. And there's a, you know, it's it's the cenotaph in London. Uses a picture in the background. And the people turning up here, these are, you know, the so-called hooligans. But if you look at your kind of mainstream press, your mainstream right-wing press, you look at your political commentators. I won't name names, but I, I guess most people know what I'd be referring to. They're not turning up at these events. They're not shouting racist abuse. They're not starting fights with the police. But they're encouraging it, and they're almost validating it so there you're kind of you're kind of who fans and that ties in i think what tiso was saying about using these groups as as agitators for the for their broader political it fits aims. into the wider narrative of where and not just the uk the world is going as a whole right so in this context of a pandemic people are looking to retreat back into the nation right so the nation has become something that 
up until a few years ago, people weren't really conscious of it. So just to kind of put like a, a personal note, like I used to speak to my friend five years ago about the word sovereignty. He didn't understand what it meant. Brexit debate happened. He says it all the time. So this idea of nation has become real for people. So what is nation? Nation for us is gathered around these kind of figures. Now, these figures for most people, I live in London. Most of the time, people used to spit on and piss on Nelson's column because no one cared. No one cared. But now he's become a figure of veneration because someone's going to take it away. So nation has become important. But this fits into the wider project of Europe becoming decentralized again, especially the UK and again in the world. People are retreating back. So protectionism has come back into the, on top of the political agenda as an, as an economic doctrine because neoliberalism seemed to be failing. At the start of 2018-19, Steve Bannon gave a talk when he was coming over to Europe to start rightward shift of Europe. And he made the kind of comment about he wants Europe to go back to the continental system of 1648 that was agreed after the Treaty of Westphalia, where each nation was clearly defined and we only traded with each other as and when. So that kind of talk that Boris Johnson and Reese Mogg talk about, about the UK, set up trade deals, bilateral trade deals, it's, that's the state of play that they want to come back. And you can see this happening. So if you look on a global scale, you're seeing China being positioned as a as an entity that versus the US and people recoupling supply chains to each entity, either China or America. We're making bilateral deals to, with Australia, like it's a big thing, but that we make we deal with twenty seven countries in the EU, but now we're making a big deal about one country. It makes no sense, but this is the world they want to go back to. A world of nations. Historically, the European experience of a world of nations has been what? One of war. And that's something Europeans are never especially Western Europeans are not used to. But our history the evidence on the, on the other side, we've we spent longer as nations fighting than we have at peace. We've only had seven years of peace. We've got one over one thousand and fifty, or well, one thousand what nine hundred years of war. Like the first thing you learn when you go to school is ten sixty six war. That is the that is a key characteristic of Europe when it's a nation. Quite depressing. Sorry. <laughs> it is depressing, and I guess like if that is what uh-huh. we're heading for, I need people that are our way inclined to understand who is inclined and who becomes the foot soldiers of fascism, far rightism, neo-nazism like it is a it's a multitude of of mainly white men but they galvanize around whiteness and racism, islamophobia, anti-semitism, but the irony is that racism. I think I think I think what Aaron Lorraine said was true like the main battle isn't against those fringe ideologies because with Europe seen they don't they don't work. Our our, our battle is with liberalism, right? Because that's our true enemy. Yep. Like these, these guys, the multitude of them are just liberal guys. Like, like we've just agreed, like they're just along for the jolly, some of them, right? Like the guy pissing, he's, he didn't know what he's pissing for. He was just, he was just there. So no, he didn't. He even, yeah, he even said it. He said yeah. in an interview, he didn't, he didn't know which statues he was there to protect. Angry, what, for whatever reason. But liberalism is the real problem. And Iranian said this, like any, any battle that marginalised people have fought recent times has been against liberalism. So when women are fighting for a vote, they're not fighting against fascist communists, liberals, slavery, liberals. It'll be mm. us versus this system. And this system is, is flexible, it's pragmatic, it's, and it's also quite insidious. It's everywhere and, and people don't really see it. How do I provide an argument against something that benefits, in inverted commas, everyone? It, it's, it's quite difficult, you know? <laughs> Janto looks depressed, sorry. <laughs> I am. No, we've got to finish there. We've got to finish there. The battle is so hard. It may, this may make you feel better. The DFLA and how they behaved on that Saturday, it, it, you know, you, you can read plenty. And I, and I agree with it mostly. It, it backfired. 
veterans groups and serving soldiers and military top brass, they don't want to be associated with any organisations of, of the kind of political persuasion that the DFLA are on. And basically, the DFLA have said that um, they're no longer going to act as um, guardians of um, <laughs> guardians of British monuments. So it, that, that particular <laughs> module itself back, back, backfired. So, you know, that, that that's, that's a positive step, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we'll take that. We're all sitting here, we're discussing it. We don't know how big they are. Equally, there are other people who think opposite, like us. And people are challenging it in different ways. Some are openly activists, but most forms of resistance are unseen, right? Most forms of resistance are things you people don't really notice. So it could be a silence or me not going or me throwing a fly away. These little acts of resistance that they are going on all the time. So I think it should always feel optimistic. It seems quite heavy because you're in it and you're perceiving it from your point of view. But right now, these things are going on all the time, all the time. And that's how I have to think of it. Like people are resisting all the time. Yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are other ways that I look at it as well to, to try and keep the optimism levels up. Um, I, you know, football matches, you know, lots and lots of football fans go to matches where there's 50,000, 60,000 people. And, you know, this this so-called national protest that the DFLA undertook a couple of weeks ago, there was like, what, 2,500 people there? You know, there were, and, and so look at it from a football fan perspective, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of football fans. And this was such a tiny, pathetic little number that... I find hope in that. I think, well, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, no. they're not significant in terms of numbers. So, you know, it, it, I guess what it is ultimately is a case of if they're going to keep appearing in the public sphere, if they're going to keep behaving the way they do, then it's up to the rest of kind of your politically engaged, engaged football fans who kind of choose to ignore mm-hmm. it, choose to stop ignoring it and to counter it. And that's something that, um, I, you know, I, I need to, Oh, thank you so much. This this is a very cathartic conversation. We have touched on a little bit over the past few weeks, but this is sort of really hit the nail on the head for me, to be honest. Um, I hope it helps some other people as well. Thank you so much for joining us again, Norman. Listeners, thank you for staying with us during this period. Thank you so much for everyone that has joined our Patreon over the past month or so, like through now. And we really, really appreciate the support. All the money goes towards production of the podcast and helping us host it and keep it going. And then we have been able to invariably pay some people as well, which has been brilliant. But yeah, thank you so much. T, anything else you want to say before we go? Just be happy, everyone, man. Be happy. <laughs> try to be, be happy. happy. Yeah, be try happy. to be happy. <laughs> try to be happy, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's crazy times, man. Like... It's crazy times. Right, see you later, guys. See you guys. Norman, thanks for that. Cheers, mate. See ya.